following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 130, Preventing Accidents Caused by Skipping Pre-Flight Checks. Coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Welcome, folks, to the Stuck Mike Avcast. I'm Carl Valeri, and I'm joined here with uh, some of my favorite aviators and uh, friends in the aviation podcasting world. First, it's uh, Rick Felty from the cold north. Rick, welcome. Hey there, it's hey great there. Great to hear you again, and I know you're under the weather, but uh, literally. Yeah, it's it's the annual uh, you know temperature changes, and I get a and I get a cold, <laughs> but it, it it's going quickly, so this will be done. Awesome. Soon. We're going to talk about something up actually in your neck of the woods, and we'll get to that in a minute. It's a uh, part cool. of the discussion. So, also uh, another person that we haven't talked to in a while, and it's uh, you know Sean, it's great to have you back, Sean Moody. Uh, welcome back to the podcast after a little bit of a break. Thanks, Carl. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I decided I'd make my quarterly appearance today. <laughs> and we're, we're so happy to have you here. Sean's, a, you know, is really passionate about aviation, and we love his input. And uh, I tell you, one of the things that's been really interesting is I know we've been uh, emailing back and forth, and you keep apologizing, but uh, just don't apologize. Just keep keep listening to the podcast, and uh, and we love having you here, and you just bring such a you know, light to this podcast here. So thanks so much. Uh, also, Russ Rosleski, it's, uh, it's good to hear you're back from from, uh, gosh, a couple of different trips, haven't you? Yeah, it's uh, it's been a little while since I've been on the, the podcast, and it's great to be here. Yeah, I've had uh, quite a few little trips lately. It's been good <laughs> cool, times. Cool, And Tom Frick, uh, welcome. Good and uh, Tom is actually in a part of the country right now, uh, and I think we're in the same part of the country right now, where we're preparing for a hurricane that's about to uh, land here. We're recording this actually on October 5th, and uh, we have this small, uh, or not a small, large, excuse me, large hurricane heading towards the United States right now. So it's been quite interesting uh, to follow. It's only a tropical storm watch. Yeah, here, it's only, I actually am, am on my way into the storm, so that'll be kind of, I'll get to go flying it in a couple of days, so that'll be a blast. Uh, but not, what's interesting, a lot of people don't realize that we've had hardly, uh, you know, I work for the airlines and we've had hardly any uh, cancellations because we do fly through these things and fly, or not through, excuse me, around these. And uh, it's uh, a little bit of navigating. Here's a kind of an interesting thing, you know, just for pre-flight planning purposes. Some of our flights, because of this storm, and it's so big, we've actually had to add 60 minutes to some of the flights. And even what we've had to do is uh, make a stop along the way. So, uh, wow. yeah, yeah. And actually, a lot of people think, oh, you know, they just go straight to their destination. You know, we do fuel stops just like we do fuel stops in a 172. You know, the it's right. there's a, a limited quantity of, of gas just in general. But uh, anyway. Hey guys, uh, welcome back, and uh, we've had quite a few interesting interviews, like with Clay Aviation on the last podcast. He kind of burst into the podcast and and took over the show there for a second. <laughs> really, really neat guy, uh, very inspirational, uh, and we've had uh, some really nice folks on, and we're going to have some more in the future as far as interviews. Let's do the pre-flight. But before we begin... 
Uh, we do have sponsors. If you're interested in sponsoring, just uh, shoot us an email, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, or go to stuckmikeavcash.com slash sponsorship. Uh, first one is uh, aerospacescholarships.com. It's the largest online directory of uh, scholarships for aerospace, aviation, and also flight attendants, mechanics. You can find any type of scholarship there for any age range, sex, uh, origin, that type of thing. You're, you'll be able to find it. It's uh, scholarships ranging from $500 to $65,000. So go to aerospacescholarships.com. Our second uh, sponsor is actually, uh, well, it's uh, Jeff Kennan. And, uh, you know, he, there's this book. You know, if you want your children to really dream of flight and, and push their imagination forward, I'd really recommend The Day I Learned to Fly by Jeff Kennan. You know, this is actually a true life story about Jeff, uh, who's now in his 50s and pursuing flying with a fervor. And he wrote this, um, uh, just a neat little uh, uh, children's book. And uh, actually, children of all ages would enjoy it. We actually talked to Jeff on a podcast on episode 98. So, uh, Jeff, we thank you for your sponsorship. And don't forget to go to the show notes at stuckmikeavcast.com, episode 130, and click on the link to go check out his book. You can actually uh, see it for a free preview on Amazon there. And also the the third thing that we're uh, talking to a little bit real quick is that, as you know, I'm coach of flight team at Polk State College. And uh, because of the area and because of the rules, we, we don't have much money for our flight team. So what I'm doing is I'm asking you this. If you could just give me 10 minutes of your time, and literally 10 minutes of your time, and donate 10 minutes of your, your work schedule, the money that you make in 10 minutes during your job. If you're in an hourly rate of, uh, you know, $60 an hour, you know, you know that what 10 minutes will be. And then you just add that and, and put it towards uh, the flight team. And the way you can donate is just go to stuckmikeavcast.com slash donate. Actually, we've set that link up. It's a new link. And when we're trying to promote different causes, uh, we will be putting that on the website. So every so often, go visit stuckmikeavcast.com slash donate donate. Uh, so, and that's to the flight team and really a great group of folks that's uh, trying to, to move forward in their careers and also learn how to compete with integrity. Again, stuckmikeavcast.com slash donate. On to the announcements. Well, we just have um, one announcement. It was really cool. I know uh, Tom Frick has, I think, been down to Arcadia Airport. You've been to Arcadia, have you not, Tom? Yeah, I've been there once or twice. There's a, there's this really neat airport that has both a paved runway and also a grass strip. I went to speak with the folks there that actually run the flight school for agricultural flying, but that's not what I'm talking about today. We're going to have that, them on on another interview talking about agricultural flying and what they're doing with that flight school there. But one of the cool things is they've started this flight club. It's called Aviation City Flying Club at Arcadia Municipal Airport. Now, Arcadia is a smaller town. There's only about 7,500 people that live there. And this town has actually promoted flying. And this airport and this group, the Friends of Arcadia Airport, has promoted flying with the help of AOPA and uh, the ambassadors there. One of them is called Jamie Beckett. His name is Jamie Beckett, and he's done a great job. We've interviewed Jamie at Sun and Fun. We've interviewed him uh, and actually on Aviation Careers Podcast also. And what he has done is he's helped these people move forward and and create this flying club at the airport. So I really highly recommend you going to – it's going to be in the show notes in the link – going to that link about the new flying club at, a, at uh, Arcadia Airport. It's called Aviation City for a reason. There's a lot of aviation training that happened there, and I've mentioned that on the podcast previously, going back to World War One even. Uh, so check them out and also look at the links – if you're thinking about getting involved in aviation, you want to get back into flying, I know a lot of you folks that, that write into us comment that you'd love to get back into flying. 
Well, this is one way to do it. It's through a flying club, and it's, it's so much less expensive than going out there and trying to do it on your own and, and actually renting aircraft. So check that out there uh, at uh, stuckbikeavcast.com, and it's talking about the new flying club. Now entering cruise flight. Also, we have uh, feedback. We, we've asked you to send in a contact at stuckmikeavcast.com. We may be able to read some of those emails. We're going to put that maybe towards the end. Uh, there was a couple of emails that came in, and uh, but one of them was kind of interesting, and I kind of want to put that in here in the beginning, and uh, just a little bit quick uh, an annotation of it. Uh, uh, there's a, a gentleman that's talking about uh, episode 124 in our discussion about large airports, and he says, hey, really interested in that final discussion on the episode, which overall was a great episode as always, thanks, about flying into large airports. Again, that was episode 124. I did my private pilot and a third of my instrument training out of Baltimore, Washington International Airport, which is really exciting, especially for someone who's interested in doing this professionally. Plus, it was perfect for where I lived, as I'm about 25 minutes from the airport. He then goes in to talk about how they the, the training that he actually had at this airport uh, kind of it was somewhat, in, in one respect, and this is me paraphrasing, a little detrimental because of the fact that he was flying his approaches a little too fast. He does discuss how he watched one of the King's School's videos uh, about making takeoffs and landings and the mentioning of the fact that a lot of people fly their approaches way too fast uh, in small airplanes, and he, he was able to get his approaches at some of the small airports down uh, by doing that, by actually concentrating on his speeds and flying a little bit slower. One of the things that I've noticed is that, in general, we tend to do that in airplanes is fly a little bit too fast. Uh, I know uh, in like in the professional world, we're very, very specific about the speeds we fly. What I'd like to know, though, is from our flight instructors here, I know Russ and also Tom are very active instructing, um, what has your experience been as far as, you know, th- this person's been flying into a bigger airport, and I know that Tom flies out of a larger airport, and I did at Houston Hobby, and we were doing approaches sometimes at 139. Uh, do you feel that sometimes that could be somewhat detrimental to somebody's training? I think I'll start with Russ as far as uh, moving into a larger airport and then moving into a smaller airport. Are we flying our approaches too quickly? Well, you know, I actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I was just flying earlier before the podcast with a, uh, a, an individual who owns a Bonanza who I had taught to, I had taught him for his instrument rating and he was just coming back for a little bit of refresher, which was good. And one of the comments he made to me before we went to fly was, I don't know if you remember, but uh, I always had a problem flying approaches too fast. And I said, yes, I do remember. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so it's funny you'd bring that up. Uh, I, you know, most of the flying I do is out of, uh, out of you know, not, not real big airports, but I do take instrument students to the larger airports that are around and, and teach them how to fly faster if, as a tool if it's needed. Uh, but... But when it's not needed, I, I yes, I try to get uh, them to slow down and uh, you give yourself more time. It, it gives you more time when, for one, and uh, you're, you're more you're more controllable, more stable, and uh, and do usually a better approach if you're flying a little bit slower. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because I I know that you know when we're doing really fast approaches to help other airlines out, say and. We're on final and we're doing 120 knots. We need to slow down and stop the airplane and, and you float and float and float. I, I'm wondering if you have noticed that, you know, when you're doing your training, how do you prepare somebody for that? You know, at a larger airport, moving from that to a smaller airport, do you say, hey, listen, we're going to fly this differently and this is how we're going to do it? Is that what you do, Russ? 
Well, I I first have already taught them how to fly it at a normal okay. speed, <laughs> and then we then I, I'll introduce. Okay, now if you know, here's what you can do if you need to. Uh, of, you know, you can fly it faster, but of course, if you're not comfortable, do it with it. Just tell ATC unable or have them give you vectors back around or something, right. uh, because. Yeah, if you, especially if you're in a, a pretty slippery plane, you can float a ways down there. Uh, you know, it's very airplane specific. I mean, I know uh, in in a you know like a Cherokee, for example. Now, granted, the the you know the high speed is is not really there, but uh, but even coming down what would be fast for a Cherokee, you can pull that power to idle once you hit decision altitude and and get to normal landing speed by the time you cross a threshold if you know if, if you've practiced it so there are techniques but uh I, certainly i don't try to work it from the you know learning how to fly them fast then trying to slow it down i think that would be the wrong way to go i'd rather teach them the normal way than teach them a tool to speed up if you right i'd have to agree it's kind of hard to do when you fly out of a larger airport but uh just have to yeah, be di- sure. disciplined about that i know uh tom you fly out of a, a rather large airport and i and, and i think you have intersecting runways where the smaller planes take off on one uh, but have you experienced this where you've had to make really fast approaches and it, does it become a a habit pattern amongst your students to fly too fast because of that um, it can be, but um, not so much. I mean, I agree with what Russ was just saying, that I, I generally try to teach them to do the approaches at the proper speed to start with because um, you don't want to instill a bad habit to start with. And, and landing, you know, doing a fast approach like that, I would consider a bad habit. And, uh, you know, taking that and trying to instill that to begin with and then teaching them how to fly the fast ones because they're going to ask. ATC is going to inevitably they're going to go, you know, keep your speed up, keep going, keep going. They always want you to come down faster, faster, you know, and yep, and, just got it today. Yep. And and when when you're first starting them, you know, I mean, there's there's keywords for ATC that you can use. And the, and the keyword is unable. You know, and when I've got a student who's just starting and they're asking us to go fast, we tell them unable. And then it's up to them to decide what they want to do with us. And a lot of times they'll just like, all right, never mind, just keep going. And then sometimes they've taken us off the approach, you know, which will go around and try it again the next time, you know, and, and sometimes it's like, okay, we may have to go do an approach at another airport somewhere so that we can do this and, and get it, get it down right the first time and then work from there. And that's, that's kind of the way that I've taken at it. And, and the airport I am at is, is definitely busy. They're constantly asking you to, to, uh, you know, speed it up on the approach. They, they won't even, they don't even take us out to the final approach fix. They, they bring us in, you know, to, um, you know, to an intersection to get us on it right immediately. Wow, that's interesting. And and so with that, I mean, you have, like, we're talking big planes, Tom. We're, we're like, talking what, Airbuses, and what else do you have there? Like, 7.5s? Um, Air, Airbuses, MD-80s, uh, C-130s, they're, they're commonly in the pattern and, in, and uh, flying approaches at my wow, airport. Wow, that's a great experience. But you also, the cool thing about all of us is that we have airports that are not too far away that are really small that we can jump into and, and learn what speed control is all about because we don't want to run out of runway. That's, that's for darn sure. And, uh, which we're going to talk about in a, in a minute here. So, uh, so anyway, that's interesting stuff. I really, I think, uh, thanks for that email, by the way, uh, from, and by the way, if you do write in, we'll, we are going to pull out your name and all your private information. So, uh, so do please keep the uh, emails coming. We really, really appreciate that. So uh, interesting discussion. And I'd also like to hear from you, the listener. Uh, what do you think? I mean, have you gotten into a habit of flying too fast? Uh, has anybody ever told you that you're flying too fast? Uh, and, uh, and why, you know, why are you flying that fast? And, and can you, can you answer that question to yourself? And sometimes it's best to reflect and see why you're doing that 
and and what's happened in the past, jump in with an instructor because I, I know they're more than willing to to help you uh, through this little challenge. So so definitely do that. Let's see, do we have time? I think for yep, we have time for one more. I think email, possibly another. So let me let me run into this other email. This has to do with. Uh, the uh, interview I did, uh, or no, this was actually a Sully review. So here we go. We have another email that came in. It says, Carl, you caught me by surprise. I heard your review of Sully and was shocked when you said you almost walked out of the theater. I thought you were about to pan it, and then I realized what you were saying. Great work. I went to see Sully on a long lunch break during a busy week. I thought it was excellent. Truly fine filmmaking. While I haven't mentioned this to anyone else, including my family, I found parts to be emotional. Even even enough to shed a tear or two, especially the scene with the controller who took losing an airplane so hard. That really resonated with me. He goes on to talk about his family and uh, and what had happened in an incident in his life, uh, especially with the, the Lockerbie cl- crash. It was very, very close to him. Uh, so, But he continues, and, and we won't uh, talk about that because that's kind of personal. But he in his finalization in this email, he says, Fear and loss are part of this business. It's rare, but it happens, and it hurts when it does. All those emotions came rushing back at me while I watched the peripheral characters deal with the emotional burden of standing by helplessly as a potential tragedy unfolds, powerless to do anything to affect the outcome. Excellent review, Carl. You really humanized your perspective to the movie. Really, really well done. Well, thanks. I really appreciate that. I, uh, that was uh, it, it was a tough review for me to do because uh, it brought back a lot of uh, memories of a situation in my life, and I think I kind of brought that out in, in that uh, review. was afraid to do that at first, but, uh, but I guess uh, all the reactions we got, I guess it was a good idea to do that. Another thing, too, I think people uh, realize now is that during the investigative process, and no matter what you're doing, uh, an accident, incident, uh, you're you're pretty much you get the feeling that you're guilty until proven innocent, and and sometimes you're treated that way. If you've ever been involved in this, things just happen so quickly, and there's every type of person in the world you know is after you to grab you, do the drug tests, etc. And uh, and everybody wants to interview, you, even uh, even including the media, of course. But anyway, thanks for the email. We're not going to have time for the next email. We'll put that in the uh, the next part of the podcast, uh, as far as or in the next podcast, I should say. So moving on to uh, to cruise flight here, our discussion today actually stems from an accident uh, which uh, killed Lewis Katz uh, and the crew that was aboard uh, an aircraft. And this accident we're talking about is, uh, like every other accident that we ever talk about on this podcast, is, is a, a teaching moment for us. And we're not really trying to point blame uh, on the individuals or, or any type of judgment, but we really want to learn from this and learn from other people's mistakes. So that's why we're, we're mentioning it here today. The accident actually, um, as a matter of fact, let me do a, a quick summary of the, the accident uh, report and, uh, and the probable cause. Uh, this was a, a runway overrun during a rejected takeoff. And this was in a Gulfstream, but this can happen to all of us. I've had friends... Uh, actually overrun the runway that uh, is here at Peter O'Knight Airport, and it was due to something similar. And uh, and also I've had uh, one of my mother's friends actually had a crash uh, that happened with the same type of situation that happened here. This accident actually was a overrun in uh, Hanscom Field in Bedford, Mass. And I think, uh, Rick, you where is actually, let's see, Hanscom I think is out to the west, northwest? It's uh, Well, I'm, I'm west of Boston, so it's actually north. 
um, and it's actually slightly east of me, <laughs> just slightly oh, okay. though. Like if I if I fly pretty much due north to you know toward uh, New Hampshire, it it'll it'll be off to my right. I can usually clear it by just heading interesting, north. Interesting, interesting. Uh, but it's so if there, there's a big ring that goes around Boston, and it's kind of on the northwest side of Boston, and it's it's north yeah. of me, and it's it's a big um, you know it's it's a big airport. I had a choice of learning there, and I picked Norwood because it was smaller. It just felt like that was a good place to start. And I, I've been into um, to Hanscom. And I remember this incident. I, I was not there, or, but I do remember it very well. Yeah, so. it must have had a big impact on the community there. Yeah. Yeah, and people, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I know some of our listeners were, were discussing that also. But So what we're going to do yeah. is we're going to go through this real quickly. I'm going to read over the, the actual summary of the accident and the findings. And then we're going to see what we can do to help prevent this accident from happening to us. So uh, let's let's get started here. On May 31st, 2014, about 2140 Eastern Time, uh, Gulfstream Aerospace uh, Corporation, G4, uh, was... Uh, crashed after it overran the end of runway 11 during a rejected takeoff at Hanscom Field. The airplane rolled through the paved overrun area and crossed a grassy area, collided with approach lights and a localizer antenna, passed through the airport's perimeter fence, and then came to a stop in a ravine. The two pilots, flight attendant, and four passengers died in that accident. The airplane was destroyed by impact forces and the post-crash fire. The corporate flight, which was uh, destined excuse me, for Atlantic City Airport, was uh, conducted under a Part 91, uh, and an instrument flight rules plan was filed. It was night, visual, meteorological conditions, and at the time of the accident. Uh, and they, they continue on here that during the engine start process, the flight crew neglected to disengage the airplane's gust lock system, which locks the elevators, ailerons, and rudder, while the airplane is parked to protect them against wind gusts. Further, before initiating takeoff, the pilots neglected to perform a flight control check that it would have alerted them of the locked flight controls. A review of the data from the airplane's quick access recorder revealed that the pilots had neglected to perform a complete flight control check before 98% of their previous 175 takeoffs in that airplane, indicating that this oversight was habitual and not an anomaly. A mechanical interlock between the gust lock handle and the throttle levers restricts the movement of the thrust levers when the gust lock handle is in the on position. And according to Goldstream, the interlock mechanism was intended to limit throttle lever to uh, throttle thrust lever angle no greater than six degrees during the operation of the gust lock. Anyway, during this whole takeoff, they uh, they actually get a warning, uh, and we're not going to read every single thing here. So I'm going to get down to the the actual. Uh, uh, you know the the summary here in a second here, but uh, as they uh, continued the role, the second in command actually noticed uh, that there was a possibility of uh, the lock being on. It actually was initiated, and by the first officer saying they rejected a takeoff at the time the pilot in command's first lock is on comment uh, was initiated. In other words, said lock is on. Uh, it took them about 11 seconds afterwards to actually abort that. Uh, so let's just go to the probable cause. So in other words, they, they knew that it was happening. It took them a while to actually turn that thrust lock off. And we're not going to go into all the other specifics. But the NTSB determined the probable cause of the accident was a flight crew member's failure to perform the flight control check before takeoff. And their attempt to take off with the gust lock system engaged. And their daily execution of rejected takeoff, excuse me, their delayed execution of rejected takeoff after they became aware that the controls were locked. Uh, contributing to the accident were, were the flight crew's habitual noncompliance with checklists. 
And uh, and there were some other uh, things that they Gulfstream. Uh, I'll continue contributing to the accident where the flight controls have it, but also Gulfstream Aerospace's failure to ensure that the G4 gust lock thrust lever interlock system would prevent an attempt to take off with the gust lock engaged. And the Federal Aviation Administration's detected inadequacy during the Gulfstream 4 certification. Now, this is not just limited to the Gulfstream. This is true on many of our aircraft. Uh, it's it's interesting here that we all have, or most of us have in our aircraft, a gust lock system. So th- this has caused an accident uh, of, you know, like I said, one of my my mother's friends uh, actually was in an accident due to this during rotation realized that the gust lock was engaged. It happens on other aircraft. Uh, some of the jets that I've flown where this gust lock is is uh, not so obvious that it's been actually disengaged. But look at our, say, a Cessna 172. Let's look at ourselves as as pilots. And now I want to hear from the, the rest of the folks here. What do, what do we do to prevent ourselves from actually having this type of an accident where we take off with, say, a gust lock that's that's actually engaged. And uh, one of the, the most simple things to do is follow the checklist and, and do a flight control check. I know where I'm at work, we never, ever, ever uh, go through and just blast past a checklist. It never happens because... You know, we it's it's just why would we? You know, this is our our job. We're not going to do this, but it's that sense of, of professionalism that we bring all of us bring to our flights. So one of the things that I'd like to hear from the flight instructors here, and I'll, I'll start with Russ as far as uh, this accident's concerned and what we can glean from this. First of all, uh, we didn't get into all the details, but we actually know that they took off with a gust lock that's engaged. And uh, one of the things that we try to do is prevent our students from doing that and, and missing certain things on our pre-flight and uh, before we take off and our before takeoff checks. Russ, what is it you do to help your students? And also, is there any comments you can make on this, this NTSB uh, report? Well, it's actually a really interesting report, and uh, I went ahead and read the the full the whole full report, all the, you know, appendixes and all that kind of thing. Cause that's, well, I guess that's just what I do. But, um, it was, it was a really interesting report because, you know, you, th- you read the summary and you think, ah, oh, they left the, the lock on and Carl, like you've said, uh, you know, of someone who has, and, and I was, uh, in a flight school where, uh, a student and the instructor, I think actually took off with one of those external, you know, rudder locks, you know, the ones oh, that kind boy, of screw yeah. on and cl- clamp the rudder. They took off with that on and did their flight and came back and noticed it when they got back. So, <laughs> of course, that makes us wonder if they're using the rudders. But, <laughs> um, but you know, that's one of those with a big streamer. But so we we see that as as the obvious problem. I mean, you know, the gust lock w- was on, you know, that's going to lock the controls. But there's so much more in this. I mean, like, why were they able to advance the the throttles, uh, you know, far enough to get takeoff speed. And it turns out that, you know, the, the gust lock, you know, had like basically like some slip in it and, you know, it wasn't ever really evaluated well when the aircraft was certified. And when it, because it was worn, you know, there's like a locking pin and that looks like that's sheared off. And so they are able to advance these throttles and there's just all this stuff. And then even when the, the, uh, the co-pilot says something about, you, know, you hear on the the CVR the you know lock and you know, was it locks on or locks on or something like that. Even then, they did an evaluation, and the pilots at that point wouldn't have been able to undo it because of force, you know, aerodynamic force on the on the control right. surfaces, you know, holding that lock in place. So just so much stuff in here. It's it's really fascinating if you read the whole report. 
Um, but but really, the overriding thing was was following the checklist. And what brought that was was basically complacency. Uh, they they made the comparison that um, like in in your world, Carl, uh, you fly with a you know new flight crew virtually every right. flight or every day or whatever, yeah. right? And 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 so you're kind of always cross-checking each other and things are very regimented. In this flight department, the pilot and the co-pilot, well, they were the, the company pilots. You know, they flew together every single day and, and they were obviously very comfortable with each other. And so they developed this, this sense of complacency where they weren't really, you know, backing each other up on the checklist. The, the audio re- recording, the transcript doesn't have any mention really of anything on the checklists, uh, on any checklist. So it's really unknown if they were, you know, going through it at all, but they certainly weren't doing, you know, by a challenge and response type, uh, type mechanism. Uh, so, so you, you look at this and you think, well, you know, we've had scenarios where we've forgotten to take the, the Gus lock off our 172 or our Piper or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it does go back to following the checklist. Uh, it goes back to trying to, Make it so you even if you miss it on the checklist, you can't miss the uh, the effect of of that control lock. I mean, I know like the the Cessna 172s have that that pin that goes through the yoke where it with a flag that's supposed to cover up the uh, the ignition and the master switch, right? So you you shouldn't even be able to start it. Well, I saw a 172 once with that thing in kind of upside down, you know, where the where the flag wasn't wasn't working. Well, if you don't install the gust lock correctly, it's not going to, you know, the purpose. One of the purposes of that one is to flag that you got a problem, so you can't even start the engine. Um, you know, putting big streamers and stuff on them, of course. But but even if you miss some obvious things and you aren't following a checklist to uninstall that gust lock. There's one more thing that that every run-up checklist has, at least in the you know the type of airplanes that I fly. Every run-up checklist has this in it, and it's controls free and clear, right? And uh, and everyone here on the podcast knows that, and hopefully uh, all of our listeners do that. And you test whether the controls are free and clear. But but one thing I see a lot is you know the the uh, well, you know, student or the, you know, the, the, the pilot I'm flying with, just kind of giving them a little bit of a wiggle and, you know, okay, well, the lock's not installed. Well, what you really need to be doing is going through the whole range of motion, you know, making sure that those controls can move through all, you know, full left, aler- you know, left and right and back and forth and throughout the whole movement just to make sure there isn't something blocking them, you know, whether it's a gust lock or not. Right. And, yeah. So well, on that, so, just real quickly, the the it's not just the controls themselves uh, outside the airplane and, and any type of binding, but it's also the flight controls inside the airplane. I mean, I, you know, embarrassingly enough, I've actually had you know, I know it's horrible, a banana get stuck in my flight controls and that I had placed there, and I was like, oh my god, I can't believe I did this. Uh, and and you're sitting there <laughs> like, God, if I didn't do my flight control check, you know, the banana obviously it would have squished, so I probably wouldn't have had a problem with a banana. But imagine if it was like a, a wrench or something, or, or, or something else that was more solid. And uh, and we do that, you know, you mentioned on the on the airline side, 
uh, there is no difference between the 172 and the airline. You do th- go through a full flight control check. The nice thing about the airline side is that we actually have indicators in the cockpit that tell us that the flight controls have fully extended, et cetera. Uh, but, you, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting how you, you've mentioned that. It doesn't change from day one, does it? Uh, when you start your, your flight training to when you move on to larger airplanes or other airplanes, you're always doing that flight control check. So anyway, continue what you were saying, Rush. Well, I, I, I think I, I think I was pretty much done there. But one thing I noticed that they actually didn't comment at all about in the in the full report, which kind of surprised me, was um, they were you know they had flown like a, a a repositioning leg earlier in the day. Then they flew with the passengers up to Massachusetts, and then they waited around all day. And then they were flying back at night, and it was like nine o'clock or something at night. And so I was wondering, although they said fatigue wasn't an issue, I was wondering if there was a little bit of come on, let's hurry up, let's get home. Get home, you know, let's, yeah, you know, it's been a long day, you know, let's, let's get on home. And, uh, of course, you know, with the, with the passengers they had, you know, I, I don't know, but you know, it's, it's possible that there was some, uh, some pressure there to let's come on guys, let's get on home quick. We got to, you know, get to sleep for our meeting tomorrow or, you know, whatever. So, um, there's always po- those external pressures, uh, internal pressures we apply to ourselves and, uh, I don't know if that might have been a factor as well, just kind of trying to hustle to sure, get out there. Sure, Yeah, actually, there's one other thing I wanted to bring up. But first, I want to ask Tom here about, uh, you know, since you're out there doing a lot of primary flight training, you know, what what is it you do to help your students prevent this type of, of accident from happening? And how do you prepare your students to do a proper check before they take off and pre-flight check? Um, my students, they have... They all look back on it because um, my first lesson that I do with them is three hours because I'll go, take, go through a thorough flight check with them and then I'll put the plane completely back together again and then I'll make them do it. So the first time around, I do it. They watch me. Second time around, they do it. I watch them. And then every time after that, um, you know, I'm, I'm one of those flight instructors that kind of likes to be a little hands off and lets them go out and pre-flight their plane by themselves. But inevitably, I walk outside and I just start pointing at things. What is this? Did you look at this? You know, and it might be things that are on the list. And um, before we fly, I do a complete uh, pre-flight myself. I go around the entire plane again and look at it. And when I'm done with it, I pull out the list and I, I, I look down it. And I want them to see that because if they see me doing it over and over again, I'm hoping that they'll do it over and over again. And I'll instill that, uh, that use of checklist in them because um, that's what was instilled in me. So that's what I'm trying to pass along. Um, I, I, I point it out. I, I point out things like I'll make them look in the rudders and at the struts that go up and, and the spars that are inside, you know, do you notice any wear in here? Are there any cracks, you know, looking at things that weren't even on the checklist because, um, you know, I always start off. Why would we even do this? Why? Because if you hear a noise in your car, you're going to pull over and look at it in a plane. We can't do that. You know, so it's, it's that important. That's yeah, a great point. That's a great point, Tom. You know, it's interesting you, you brought that up as far as the pre-flight checklist, and this is going to lead into something else I wanted to talk about about this accident. Another dynamic I, I'm not sure was discussed much in this uh, in the NTSB report, and we didn't discuss it in the summary, but when you say, Tom, you said you use a checklist, how about when you're flying with a student? Uh, do you walk through them with a checklist? Do you watch them, or what is it that you do? Do you an abbreviated checklist? How do you go about that? Um, most of them like to walk around with the checklist to start with. Um, I, I teach them that it's totally acceptable to go around because the checklist I teach them is, is more involved than what's actually written down, uh, on the, on the, uh, checklist itself. Um, the checklist that we used was, uh, 
copied out of the POH and uh, it covers you, you touch just about everything on it but there's other things that I'm looking at too right. you know I mean the POH doesn't have you looking at rivets POH doesn't have you looking at um, you know there's there's a little clip that's above the strut on the nose wheel that um, I've seen actually one of them crack already you know so they they take certain um, abuses from uh, trainer aircraft and, and there's certain things that they can look at that'll uh, you know, make sure that that uh, aircraft is structurally sound, and um, you know goes goes way above and beyond the POH. And that's what I'm trying to show them is that okay, we have a checklist here. It's very thorough, but you know what, we can do better. And and that's what I want you to do. I want you to get that mindset. Just don't, you know, mechanically go around this thing. Just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. I looked at it. I looked at it because it's going to bite you one day. You know, and if you go through and look at it and, and physically look and, and take the time to look at it and see if there's something wrong and then get it corrected. You find anything. Let's go find a mechanic and let's go see what we can do to get it corrected. So, Tom, with that said, now your, your student has done the walk around. Let's talk a little bit about two people that have flown together quite often, just like you do in the airplane with your students. You know, you're, you're doing many lessons. You're on lesson number 20 or 30 with the, with the student. You've, you've built this rapport, a friendship even. And now you're going out to the airplane. And sometimes the most dangerous situation is having two pilots that, that are real good friends getting out there and flying a plane together uh, because sometimes we rely on each other for certain things and say, hey, did you do this? Did you do that? Uh, you know, I have a friend that that happened to. He said, hey, you know, put an extra 30 minutes of fuel in the plane. Uh, it turns out he put an extra 30 minutes, but he actually flew 30 minutes to get to the point where they're taking off, wound up going down in the Gulf Stream. Uh, they all got out uh, safely. But the point is that are we in that dynamic of flying with people that we know and that we've been flying often with? Do, you, do we find that there is a situation that, that comes about that makes things even maybe a slightly less safe because of that? Are we checking each other or are we relying on each other uh, when we're going through that? So, Tom, that to that point, uh, have you ever noticed that when you're flying, say, with a student? You know, are you uh, involved in that pre-flight check? Do you ask certain questions during that pre-flight? Or is it, hey, you know, you did the pre-flight, let, let's go, let's just jump in the plane? Um, no, I, like I was saying, I had a, I had a really good first flight instructor and, um, he instilled that in me and, and looked me straight in the eye one day and told me, I do not trust you mm -hmm. and, and I never will. And uh, I hope you never trust anybody either. And I have it. So I tell the same thing to all of my students too. It's, I just don't trust you. Uh, and I'm going to go through and if I'm going to get in this plane, I want to make sure that it's fine and don't ever be offended that I'm going through and doing a, doing a pre-flight or that I ever ask you questions about, you know, what things look like. I says, I might ask you how much oil is in this aircraft and you'll tell me, oh, there's six and a half quarts and I'm going to go over and look at it. Don't be offended by that because I want to see it. Um, and it, it, that holds true for that, that entire pre-flight. I, I really just don't, I personally don't want to get into an aircraft that I haven't looked at. And I've even been a passenger in planes that I'm um, not typed in and yet I still will walk around them if I have that opportunity. Um, obviously, I fly commercial sometimes and they won't let you out of the plane even though I ask. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. That's uh, And Russ, I mean, with you, I mean, if you and I went flying, obviously we both have some experience flying, uh, and I bring, say, the 182 that I own and I've been flying often, uh, what are you going to do with me? I mean, what? how would you work towards that situation in the same dynamic where you and I would get along, we're buddies and all, but you know, when we're in an airplane, now we bring a certain level of professionalism. Uh, how do we approach that? Is there is there like a line that's crossed there if you say, hey, Carl, did you do this? 
Oh, I don't trust I you, I knew Carl. it. I knew I was trying to get that out of you. <laughs> Tom, I don't trust you either. <laughs> no, because Tom's point is absolutely correct. And, uh, you know, yes, you know, would I, you know, take off inspection panels and such? Well, no, you know, of course not. But uh, I might ask a couple questions or something, you know, or, or take a quick look around at myself. You know, heck, I did that today on my flight. I've flown with this guy many times before in his airplane. And, you know, I still walk around and looked at a, a few of the um, – you know, important things that I consider on that airplane. And, uh, you know, he obviously had, had no problem with that. But, but I think what, you know, what the, the risk is, of course, there, you know, you, you come by and, you know, you've done a, presumably a pre-flight and I just say, ah, yeah, you know, Hey, let's, let's go fly. And, and we just don't, right. And we don't check it over anymore. And, uh, you know, or I don't check it out and, you know, that's, that that's so commonplace and and it's a great example of kind of you know the same type of thing that works into this accident is uh is comfort with each other and and complacency and such and i mean obviously this was a this was a crew environment in this accident so they've each got you know responsibilities and such which is a little bit different than you know you and i just going and flying but uh but but the the killer was complacency and if you know if we can do what we need to do to work that out of our daily flying, we'll all be safer for Yeah, it. and I think that's a great point, is that sometimes we get complacent if we fly with somebody all the time, and, and they have certain duties. Like, I have a friend that I fly with all the time, and they do the certain part of the checklist, and I'll get whatever for them, and hey, I'll do this. But sometimes we, we even though it's part of our job to do something, the other person should also verify that that's done. I mean, we do that in the crew environment, the airlines, right? We we have certain tasks that each person does, but we also verify the other person did it. And I think that's important. So if you have a, a friend, a partner, a spouse that you fly with, I think it's very important for you to, to double-check each other's work and, and, and just not double-check, but verify is a better word for it, uh, which is, is incredibly important. It's what they do in the airlines. So maybe something to think about. You know, if you fly with – and I'd love to hear back from some the listeners as far as who you fly with, what your partner, your flying partner, and, and what you do to make that environment much safer. Um, but getting back to the checklist, I know, uh, Rick, is uh, you received your private pilot and you had a, a, actually, a, I feel like a brand new airplane that you got to fly in. It that was pretty cool, especially the videos that I get to watch. Uh, do you yeah. remember that process of, of your instructor and, and what they instilled in you? Because uh, that obviously is going to come out in what you say right now. What did they teach you yeah. about pre-flight inspections and, and how not to miss things? And well, I think um, the, the description we were, you know I just heard was exactly right. That there was a lot of discussion of trust and and don't you know don't worry about uh, us not trusting each other because I'm going to double check you and um, and you know it, it, it was just I guess my own sense of I mean I got how important it was so um, the fact that there were lists and the fact that it was the same you know I would sometimes I would say after I did it a while so I would do it and I did I did it we we did it religiously and. Um, there was never there was never a shortcutting thing going on. One of the things that I think sort of happens is um, you get comfortable with the list. I find my, I found myself um, at times going, "Hey, did I do that? Did I? I better, uh, you know, maybe I skipped. Did I skip that one? It wasn't so much all the time, but sometimes like, oh yeah, wait a minute, I'm supposed to run the engines up to this, and it depends also on frequency of flying and how often you get to run that same list, um, and. Uh, but it was never – there was never really a – you know, th- there was never a question that it was the right thing. That it, it was what you did. I held the list in my hand walking around the plane. Um, again, I'm probably a – maybe I'm a typical 
pilot in that timeline, you know, learning, which is that I'm not doing it every day and uh, I'm doing it fairly regularly, but sometimes not an, enough. And uh, so it's almost new every time. I generally know the flow and I generally, you know, did it in the same order in the same way. And I looked at the same things and there were extra things that were added um, that weren't on the list, like like some of that deeper looking in uh, with the, the, the flaps uh, or, you know, pushed up to, to look for um you know, uh, keys, or cut, you know, sort of cutter key things or, or, or pins or bolts or things. So um, it was fairly detailed. And, uh, you know, but but I will say, too, that, that I've, I've told this story before, but there was a there was a problem on a, on a long cross country where I was losing oil that I didn't notice until I got back. And I would have noticed it. And I think I didn't do as thorough a I mean, I did. That's that whole issue of going to another airport. And do you do a full pre-flight or do you you know, you've just made it somewhere and you come back around and you kind of do a quick, you know, walk around and whatever. I mean, you still do all the checklists, but I wasn't looking closely at the cowling and I, I might have seen some oil there um, and it all turned out okay, but I, I probably should I probably should have seen it. Right. You know? So so that's an example where I was comfortable, the list, the list was used, but it wasn't used every time and in the same way, I wasn't as meticulous about it. So, um, but I, I would say I got some good instruction on that. Um, now I was going to talk earlier about that. And I'm not going to get into it now, but the the speeds on landings, and that's probably where I didn't get as good an instruction because I was always fast <laughs> but until I finally realized why it helped me a lot to not be fast. But um, but in terms of checklists, no, it was pretty constant, and you know pushing pushing the yoke, or in the case of the Cirrus, the stick, whatever, to the stops, you know, all the way while looking around to make sure outside is is correspondingly moving in the right direction. All that made sense, you know, to me that it was like oh, I've got to check that because, you know. <laughs> Uh, that everything everything's riding on all these checks right. you know well yeah and rick you, you you made a good point i wanted to kind of follow up on you about uh just you know being so comfortable with the same airplane and the same checklist you know all the time yeah i own an airplane for 11 years and there are pages in my logbook where it's just pages and pages and pages of that one airplane and me and there would be you know months and months where i wouldn't fly anything else and so yeah you know i it was my airplane. I was the sole owner. I wasn't even a partner. You know, I was the last person who flew it, and I'll be the next person to fly it. And so it was very, very tempting sometimes to just kind of, you know, oh, I, you know, I, I know there's no water in the fuel. It's been in a hangar. You know, I'm not going to sump it, or, or uh, you know, I'll just skip through the checklist because everything yeah. worked fine last time, and you know, nothing's happened to it. <laughs> I mean, the, the temptation is there, and it's, and it's very real, especially for aircraft owners, especially. Yeah, I bet. Uh, yeah, but uh, you know, you just gotta kind of well, well, think about it this way: when does you know when does the plane break? Right. Well, right. it breaks probably. It doesn't break in the hangar usually. It breaks either while you were flying it last time or on landing or something. Right. So, yeah. so if you don't do that thorough checklist, that thorough pre-flight, those all those checks in the airplanes you're taxiing out, whatever, you know, you're that's when you're gonna find what happened on your last flight. Probably. Right. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say that because, you know, it was, it's a, it was a good, good school. Things were well maintained, you know, everything was right on and it was, everything was solid. And mostly, mostly all the pre-flights were nominal. You know, everything was great. It was right what it should be. Everything lined up. There was a time where I got out to, um, to do the run up and, uh, one of the mag checks wasn't where it normally is. And it wasn't like it was bad, oh, you know, like crazy bad, but it was different. And I knew it was different because I had done it so many times that, you know, this isn't, this isn't right. And I, and I taxied back because yeah, I didn't I, know the, I didn't know the plane well enough 
to know how off it was. And I, you know, I later had some conversation with some people about it and, and it wasn't, it wasn't a big problem, but it was enough off for me. And that was a good example of the list helping support my decision because it had been the same all the time. Yeah. Well, you know, I had one experience where I had probably owned the airplane for almost 11 years by this point, never once found any water in the fuel at all, ever. I mean, not a single drop at all. So, you know, 11 years of not finding any water in the fuel, whether it's been parked inside, <laughs> outside, in yeah. rain or whatever. Was this a high wing or a low wing? It, it was it was a low wing. It was a yeah, jet. So it was I'm, a not cli- I'm not going to climb under that thing again, right? <laughs> well, eleven well, years, it's fine. I'll just I'll skip yeah, one. Yeah, and and so the, the you know the, of course the temptation was really strong to kind of skip that part. Well, you know I didn't. And one you know one time, eleven years in the owner, I found water in the fuel, right. and I was so amazed. I took pictures of it. Right. You know, now, uh, am I seeing this correctly? But you know, exactly. but you because it it so quickly didn't look right. 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 And if so, if I had chosen that day to say, ah. You know, I've, I'm never going to find water in this guess. Well, it would have been, uh, it would not have been my day, I guess. So we'd be uh, talking about you yeah. in the NTSB report. Yeah, right. there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Which we don't want to have happen. That's for sure. And, uh, <laughs> interesting gosh, you know, I, I know that we have this dynamic of checklists and, and, and flying with people that uh, we get used to and maybe not checking certain things. But one more thing I wanted to discuss, and we just have like about five, 10 minutes to do this is how about that dynamic of, the instruments in the airplane or the devices in the airplane that we use that prevent us from doing things that are going to hurt ourselves or the airplane. For instance, uh, there are certain airplanes that will warn you if the gear is not down, how much do we rely on those systems and become complacent in the fact that, yeah, that'll, that system will actually remind me that the gear is not down. What if you, you fly, uh, for work, I fly an airplane that you just can't stall. Well, you know what? It actually can stall. So, you know, there's, it, it'll, try, it'll prevent you. Uh, there's a lot of systems that are in there that'll prevent you from doing silly things. But the thing is, that's there for your backup, just like the, the checklist and doing the flight control checks, et cetera. What's interesting is that the next part that I wanted to discuss here quickly is that, you know, what, are, what systems in an airplane and, and, you know, look inside yourself, if you're listening right now and, you know, the co-host, what systems in the airplane uh, that are there to protect me do I rely on too much? What are the things that, that I may rely on way too much? I'll, got, I'll give you one example. And for me, that this one really strikes a chord. They, some of us use ForeFlight or, or any other software that's on our iPads, et cetera, that also it tells us about TFRs. And, uh, and this is one that goes towards trying to prevent a violation. Well, sometimes those TFRs don't pop up on our, on our devices, and we don't know about them. So what's the best way to find out? Just make a phone call and ask. And that's one example of you know not just relying on the one device, but using a backup, that type of thing. I'm wondering uh, you know, if, if anybody here, Russ, I know you've, you've flown some retractable aircraft, and so has Tom. You know, what, what kind of systems in, in your airplanes... Uh, have you noticed people use and become reliant upon to allow themselves to to not get into trouble in an airplane, such as a, a gear indication system, et cetera? Do you do you have any example of that, Russ? Well, I'm trying to think as you're as you're talking. Um, like, you know, I was going to say, ahead. like in the Arrow, 
you know how the automatic gear extension some people have gotten it complacent in that <laughs> yeah there is that that automatic gear extender system most of the arrows i flew had it uh, you know dis uh what's it disconnected or whatever <laughs> i guess it was, it was too much of a problem there's but, one, yeah, one but, i was trying to lead down the road here and maybe i'll kind of hint at it and uh it's something that we look at every day and we have to calculate it every day before we fly and we make sure we have enough of it in the airplane and we have a gauge in front of us that tells us how much there is and uh but we, you know, the the, the fuel indicators uh, in, in the airplane, you know, how much do you rely on those to be the proper, you know, levels in our tanks? Well, I certainly teach my students to not rely on them at all. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, there are good ones. Well, no, I should say there are bad ones and then there are less bad ones, <laughs> I guess. But, but um, yeah, yeah. That's that's the classic example, of course, of uh, of an instrument that you can't really rely on in, in the airplane. Right. There's yeah. there's another one that I I like to uh, to teach with my students. It's also remember I I was kind of alluding to this with the stall protection. Uh, there's in, in the Airbus I fly for work. You know it won't stall. It'll protect us. But also on our aircraft, we have a lot of times stall warning systems, don't we? And many times we rely on that to prevent ourselves from stalling, but what if that system doesn't work? So, you know, if there's any way that you could disengage that system legally and and make it so you can fly and, and show people, hey, this is what happened, this is the cues you have of a stall, and I know it says in the PTS or, or you know, that says, hey, we, we need to, you know, know how to, uh, airplane stalls by the buffet, what the sounds are, et cetera. But how much do they we drill that in their heads for the day when that actually doesn't work, you know, that type of thing? And I think that's... Well, that's yeah, that's an interesting point, and I hadn't hadn't thought about that. Led me to think about uh, the new crop of uh, AOA indicators mm-hmm. and how they're becoming more popular in, in light aircraft. And and your comment made me think, you know, as people fly them, more they're they're going to rely on them, which is of course they're great instruments, and that's what you're supposed to do. You know, keep the keep the blue donut on there or whatever, depending on which model you have, and you fly a great approach. Well. What if, you know, what if something's off? What if uh, you know it gets damaged or broken in some way? You know, are you going to blindly rely on that AOA indicator that might not be working? And you know, what other? You know, th- then you 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 should revert to your former skills of you know, of airspeed and you know feeling you know stall buffet and all that kind of stuff that you talked about. But how comfortable are you going to be if you haven't even paid attention to those cues in in a long time? Yeah. It's a little more subtle. I mean, that, that's for sure a little more nuanced yeah. when you're talking about those systems in an airplane that we take for granted. You know, do, is the gear down? I, I know that in a lot of the Cessnas, we, you know, we have the indicators, right? And, in, you know, Cessna 172RG, and we've, we look, but we also a lot of times have, what, a mirror that we can double check. And how many times have we put the gear down and just looked at the gear indicators and not used our, our other device, which is just the mirror, to make sure that front wheel is actually down? Uh, sometimes we get a little too complacent. So, so again, it, it's really it's hard to do sometimes. Uh, but once you get in that habit, it, it's not it's not that bad. It's uh, it's it's something that uh, as a professional, which we all are, you know, private level, et cetera, we try to bring professionalism to our flying. It's something we do. And and what's interesting is that if you get yourself in that habit of doing all those checklists and not relying on those systems to protect you, sometimes we get a little too, too complacent with those other systems saying, hey, I can just rely on this. Oh, I can rely on the parachute. Well, what if the parachute doesn't work that day, et cetera? You know, there's, there's all those things that go through your mind. And, and so you, what you try to do is make it the, the safest 
possible operation you can by double checking everything and not just complying or not just relying on excuse me those other safety systems you know like the system in the airplane that tells you that the gas is is empty well it doesn't say it's empty well you know that doesn't mean it's not empty so those kind of things and and that's what we have to think about we have to have to also have to think about who we fly with and if we're flying with somebody and we look at them and say hey did you do that did you do that and you're in the air it's like no that's the wrong time to find out if you have forgotten something, that's that's really really true. It's it's something that I think is is a little more nuanced, but I'd love to hear from people that have partners that they fly with awesome, often. Uh, not and I I do find that when I'm you know flying with the same crew over and over and over again, uh, sometimes we get this groove going, and we're you know both you know relying on each other to do certain things, and uh, there's certain things that go unsaid, but. But when it comes down to it, when it comes to the actual pre-flight checks, we always are verifying each other. So we could actually have another whole discussion, by the way, on that whole AOA, which I know we've talked about a little bit, uh, and many other ways that we could make our flying safer. But unfortunately, we're running out of time. Uh, and I thought this was a really good discussion. I think we've brought forth a few more questions uh, and and certain things that I think are really important to note is, and we're going to have links, by the way, to the NTSB report. We really only uh, did an overview of that whole accident because there are many other systems and other aircraft, and I know I've flown aircraft uh, that have gust locks, which which actually can look like they're removed, they're unlocked, but they're only half unlocked, and uh, and you can take off actually with the gust lock half unlocked, and then realize, oh my gosh, you know this this isn't right, and sometimes it's too late, and uh, you're at rotation speed and you're flying, so that's always an interesting one, how to get that gust lock all the way off, and I think some of the people that that are listening may even know what aircraft I'm talking about, and I'll just hint at that. Our picks of the week. But we have to get to our, our next thing. This is a really good discussion, guys. I really want to continue that. I'd love to get some feedback from our listeners. But we have to move on, uh, actually, to our picks of the week. And uh, I know that this is kind of a fun part of it. By the way, all the past picks of the week are on the website. Go to the, to the uh, past picks of the week, the uh, tab at the top, picks of the week. Uh, let's start with Sean. I think I'm going to start with Sean Moody who's uh, uh, who, with your pick of the week here. Yeah, uh, mine is Waldo Wright's Flying Service. Um, had the opportunity a couple of days ago. They were passing through uh, the central Kentucky area, and it's a, uh, a guy who flies around. He had with him this time a steerman uh, offering rides in it, and he goes from place to place. He's usually based out of Lakeland, Florida, and um, he just does a great job of conveying the passion uh, that we all have for aviation to people who – may not ever have been in the cockpit of an airplane before. Um, he's also a former University of Kentucky basketball player, so of course <laughs> I'm going to be a fan of his. Um, but uh, but he just is a really passionate guy, looks to, to share that passion with other people um, and try and get them excited about aviation, which, of course, we all know uh, more pilots is never a bad thing. Um, and if you want to check it out, uh, the website is www.waldowrights.com. Interesting. And some really cool pictures that he has there. And Waldo is in a very fascinating, uh, or the, this whole service is very fascinating, the Flying Circus, et cetera. So definitely check that out. So they have some really cool pictures of their airplane there. So thanks for doing that, Russ. I really appreciate that. Or excuse me, Sean, I appreciate that. Uh, speaking of Russ, I must have had Russ on the mind. What What is Russ? What is your I'll go buy of? anything. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Sean. <laughs> no, no, I don't even know who I'm talking to. But yeah, Sean, thanks. I appreciate that. Russ, what is your pick of the week? 
Well, I recently uh, read a book, and this it's titled 81 Days Below Zero, The Incredible Survival Story of a World War II Pilot in Alaska's Frozen Wilderness. And uh, this book, actually, I, I could just read it. It's, it's available on Amazon uh, uh, you know, as a book, as a Kindle book. I actually just checked it out as an e-book from my local library. Uh, it was really, really a fascinating story because Oh, here, I'll read you a little short bit about it. It says, shortly before Christmas in 1943, five Army aviators left Alaska's Ladd Field, which is uh, uh, Fairbanks, was up near Fairbanks, on a routine flight to test our hastily retrofitted B-24 Liberator in harsh winter conditions. The mission ended in a crash that claimed all but one. Leon Crane, a city kid from Philadelphia with no wilderness experience. With little more than a parachute for cover and an old Boy Scout knife in his pocket, he found himself alone in sub-zero temperatures in the you know, middle of winter in Alaska. Uh, and the title of it, 81 Degrees Below Zero, kind of leads you, you know, it kind of gives away a little bit of the ending. You know, he, he obviously did survive <laughs> to tell the story, but he was, he was out there by himself for 81 days in, in, in Alaska in the middle of the winter with, you know, not a whole lot <laughs> of survival equipment. And so it's just a really fascinating story, and the author did a great job of uh, – of piecing together, you know, all the you know, interviews with everybody and, and even goes ahead and goes into detail about, you know, some of the history, not only of the, you know, the, the, the pilot here, but also the, you know, everybody else in the plane and the, the people who tried to help finding uh, them and some of the other locals that were involved in the story in Alaska. And it's just a really interesting story about, about, you know, surviving in Alaska period, not just in the wilderness, but how life was in Alaska in the, you know, in the forties and, bef- and even before with some of the history. So, um, it's not a lot of, you know, a lot, not a lot of flying scenes, but, uh, certainly it is a really good, uh, you know, aviation related read. Awesome. And this, uh, this book you can find on Amazon. We'll have a link to that. 81 days below zero. That yep. sounds uh, kind of scary. Actually, the title itself, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. shivering. Yeah, it was, it was quite a story. <laughs> Well, Rick, what is uh, what is your pick of the week, Rick? Well, something that I actually just noticed that Sean actually commented on, and I think Sean mentioned this before, back when it was coming out into theaters. But just a quick note that uh, Living in the Age of Airplanes, uh, Blu-ray and DVD is coming out October 25th. And it does look like there's some pretty cool extra stuff on there. So um, I have not seen it yet, so I'm going to probably be picking up the Blu-ray. But awesome. Sean, you saw it, right? The Living in the Age of Airplanes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was great. I saw it yeah. up at the uh, the Aviation Museum in Dayton, um, yeah. narrated by Harrison Ford, I think. Right, uh, and just really interesting. It's um, a lot of it is is about the the flying, but a lot of it is also about the ways that aviation kind of connects, connects the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, in ways you might not think about uh, when it comes cool. to shipping things and things like that. It's it's a, absolutely a great watch and and beautifully shot. I think they shot on every continent. Uh, yeah. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And you'll see some now if you look around before that date. They're, they're, they're sort of sneaking out extra clips that are on the DVD as a oh. teaser, and it looks amazing. So that comes out October 25th. I'm sure you can pre-order it now. Awesome. That, that's too cool. We'll have to put some links to some of the videos, too, I'm sure, that yeah. they have out there on the Internet. Uh, awesome. I appreciate that. Also, uh, let's see, next pick of the week. I'll do mine. How's that sound? The, uh, there's this really cool uh, video that I saw, and it was actually, I think, released by by Microsoft, I think, released this. And, and it's actually their way of taking you inside the aircraft at the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. And I really thought this was neat because by using devices, and this is where where I love 
you know, electronic devices that allow us to do things that we never would be able to do and also help preserve things. These aircraft, they're out there on the flight line and they're in the museums and we want to go inside them and look at the cockpit and crawl around them. But you know what? We, we really, we, we'd be destroying the, these pieces of history. So what, what Microsoft did is actually took video and uh, actually went inside the cockpit of these aircraft and inside the whole fuselage and then, what they've done is come up with this video where they can actually allow you through virtual reality, through actually looking at it like an iPad, or uh, look inside that. Look inside that air- aircraft that you're watching right in front of you, say a B-29 or, or an F-14. You can actually sit in the cockpit by looking at this this device, and it'll show you uh, all around the in- interior, just like you can do like some of these homes online. You can view the interior, but you're doing this in the airplane that's sitting in front of you, not just any airplane, but the airplane that's sitting in front of you, a virtual tour, and uh, and they take you on this virtual tour through this video. It's called Behind the Scenes, Step Inside the Museum of Flight, and it's a YouTube video that I want to share. And also, of course, uh, with that, I'll, send, I'll put a link, uh, the museumoffflight.org, really cool out in uh, Seattle. It's, uh, it's just fascinating. They have actually, I think, the original Boeing... Um, uh, building that they had when they started their aircraft business is actually on their grounds. And I think they also have a Concorde out there. It's a, I think it's a British Airways Concorde. Really neat stuff. So definitely check out that video. I thought that was so cool that I could actually step inside the airplane that I'm looking at while I'm outside. Anyway, so that's my pick of the week. And next pick of the week is uh, Tom. What is your pick of the week? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I spend time with students and, uh, you know, these days everything's going electronic. Everybody wants an, uh, an electronic flight bag, an EFB, and and uh, trying to figure out which way to go, uh, whether to go with the ForeFlight or the Garmin product and, and even just how to use this stuff and, and how to get familiar with presentations and things like that. And uh, I came across this one and um, it's uh, specifically it's a website and specifically their app. So it's uh, flightplan.com and it's spelled flt P-L-A-N, flightplan.com, and specifically their app, which is Flightplan Go. And uh, what I like about this particular product is that it runs on anything. It'll run on the Apple products. It'll run on the Android products. It'll run on the Windows products. So um, it, it can be used by whatever you got. It, it'll run on it. A um, little bit of setup that you can do for certain aircraft and, and uh, profiles on the website itself, but um, you don't have to. And uh, all of the stuff is free. You can get it on there. You can do flight planning. You can get weather and notams. You can get uh, information about FBOs. You can do flight tracking. Um, there's weight and balance tools. There's E6B tools in there. I mean, it's it's pretty robust for for a free product. And and uh, you know, I point people to it all the time, and it gives them an opportunity to see how some of this stuff is presented as they're trying to figure out what they want to do and and how involved they want to get with it. Um, for some of my students that fly, just occasionally it works out great for them because they don't want to spend the, you know, $150 a year for four flight or for Garmin pilot. So, uh, flight plan go is, is uh, my pick of the week. Flight plan go. And they can also find that off their website, flight plan, fltplan.com. You can download it from there and also use that too for flight plans. That's, that's a really cool product. I haven't used it in years, but I think it's really neat that there's an app. I'm, I'm actually downloading it on my phone right now. Another yeah, and thing. Carl, you know, it's, it's, it, what's, been cool about it is they've been growing and they've been uh, adding stuff to it. I mean, it wasn't as robust uh, as it is now just even 
yeah, six, eight months ago. So um, they're constantly fine-tuning. So that's kind of why I brought it up. It, it, it's a pretty neat little product. Well, that's cool. I actually haven't used flightplan.com in, in about three, four years, so I can't wait to, to play around with it. And uh, you can file flight plans and everything with it. And uh, So that that's really, really cool. Makes your life easier. And it's a really good price, isn't it? Free. <laughs> you know, I like that. Indeed. Yeah. Well, guys, this is uh, that was all of our picks of the week. Of course, uh, we do appreciate your listening. And don't forget to visit our sponsors. Uh, one is uh, Jeff Kennan's The Day I Learned to Fly. You know, if you want your children to dream of flight, help push their imagination forward through reading The Day I Learned to Fly by Jeff Kennan. Again, it's a true life story about Jeff who's now actually in his 50s and pursuing flying with a fervor. He's uh, been on the show before, episode 98, and he's the sponsor of this episode. If you're looking to sponsor an episode, uh, just contact us or go to uh, stuckmikeavcast.com slash sponsor. Well, folks, we really appreciate you listening today. Safe flying and do something so that you can have a safer pre-flight inspection before your next flight. Think about that. That's my, my challenge to you. We'll talk to you next episode. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.